Welcome to a new episode of David's Politics Show. In 1930, the Italian writer and political thinker Antonio Gramsci wrote that, quote, The crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot be born. In this interregnum, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear, unquote. In this episode, I want to try to find a connecting thread between a number of, as it were, morbid symptoms. And what I have in mind here is, on the one hand, the GameStop debacle that we saw play out in the last couple of weeks, the complete failure of the state and of the deregulated energy market in Texas, as with the blackouts uh, in Texas, but also the Trump administration's fight over TikTok, uh, the Chinese app, the IMF telling states not to worry about, nation states that is, not to worry about incurring debts now to fight the pandemic. This is a kind of a, a melange of, of different phenomena, but what do all these phenomena tell us about the ideological transformation that is underway regarding the relation between the state and the market? From the late 70s to the financial crisis in 2008 and beyond it, neoliberalism reigned. And what it amounted to was a, an ideology which praised low deficits, light-touch regulation, the idea being that regulation was always kind of the dead hand of the state interfering with markets, that inequality was not necessarily a problem, because even rather extreme inequality in the end ended up lifting all boats. That was kind of the saying as was the idea that the wealth generated at the top would, as it were, trickle down to the lower orders of, of society, and therefore a concomitant idea that tax havens, for example, were maybe to some extent a nuisance, but really not a great, really, really not a big deal, etc. The financial crisis in 2008 put pay to the idea that all was well with the dominant configuration of the capitalist system, which had this kind of neoliberal flavor to it. And yet, although it was in fact in 2008 the state which saved the day through massive bailouts of, of the banks and of other um, institutions in the financial system, huge interventions by the central bank, particularly of course by the Federal Reserve, implementation of so-called automatic stabilizers, even in the US, such as unemployment benefits and so on and so forth, not to mention the huge stimulus bills. Despite all of this, all this intervention by the state, ultimately, the reigning ideology was not fundamentally displaced. And we can see it in the fact that very soon after, it was austerity which followed, paradigmatically in the UK under Cameron and Osborne, but also in the US where the Republican Congress obstructed Obama's efforts to stimulate the economy further. Another crucial point is that precisely in the US, Obama did not politically and rhetorically go after the bankers. And that is because he didn't come to power with a view, with a personal view, as to what was fundamentally wrong with the American system. So his, in, his in immediate instinct faced with the, the, the calamity before him, was to basically put Humpty Dumpty back together, so to speak. 
in other words, save the banks, stabilize the financial system by essentially resetting it to the status quo ante. And the anger that was generated by not only the crisis, but the blatant unfairness of the crisis never abated. It only migrated from one node to another. We first saw it with Sarah Palin, John McCain's running mate in the Republican Party in 2008. Then it emerged as the Tea Party, which reached its apogee, let's say, in 2012. And then ultimately, it coalesced around the figure of Trump in a, in a somewhat vague, inchoate way. But he clearly represented the, or he clearly constituted the node along which and on which the rage that was generated by the financial crisis was able to concentrate. Now, in my view, it's fairly clear that the, the GameStop debacle is another symptom of this belated effect. Now that Trump is out of the picture, and largely he is, I think, he is no longer the node along which this rage can concentrate, but it's still there, and it finds other outlets. And in fact, if you look at the rhetoric that the people on the Reddit, chat boards, etc. were using, shows you that the GameStop phenomenon was not just a neutral financial play. Not just guys just talking about, you know, Wall Street bets in a kind of nerdy or, or purely greed-based way. It was motivated by a sense of a justified uprising against the elites, against the man, so to speak, against the Wall Street types against those who, to use Trumpian terminology, have rigged the game, against what he used to call the swamp. Now, at the beginning of the Biden administration, we can already see that, unlike in the Obama administration, there are now large changes underway in terms of how the American elites are thinking about the role of the state. And this, I argue, is largely fueled by fear of China. And by and large, I think it is a welcome development. In a number of domains, the realization is dawning among these elites that corporations and the state's interests do not necessarily align. In fact, they rarely do. For corporations, of course, China is, is a huge appetizing market for all its difficulties. For the state, it is becoming an almost existential threat. And there are many examples of what I earlier using Gramsci's phrase called morbid symptoms. The, the use, for example, of offshore and shell corporations in the US itself. That was great for the elites to enrich themselves in, in the 90s and in, in 2000s. But now the, the realization is dawning that, oh, it's actually a great way also for North Korea, China and others to, to allow money laundering to go on in the US itself. China is itself trying to woo Wall Street, Wall Street banks, for example, as leverage against Washington. And the sense is emerging in DC that American companies might not be sufficiently patriotic precisely because they're in hawk to the demands of shareholders and they have purely financial interests and purely financial objectives. In other words, they're really not that American. They are essentially internationalized, globalized corporations. Another example, the use of contractors in the national security establishment, which is basically a, an offshoot of the reigning, again, neoliberal idea that 
profits had to be maximized by essentially reducing cutting costs wherever possible, finding the lowest the lowest uh, bid. Even if you subcontract significant chunks of the states of what were traditionally thought of as, as the state's responsibilities, namely, namely national security, military affairs, and so on and so forth. The use of contractors in the national security establishment has clearly led to a weakness which Russia and others, China included, can exploit. And we've seen that with the solar wind hack, for example. In another crucial domain, that of industrial policy, which had long been a taboo word, almost, in the US. The idea that the state could somehow actually direct the flow of economic activity with some larger purpose in mind, as opposed to letting the quote-unquote free market do its thing. And this is again returning this sense that we, the US needs an industrial policy, because again, the fear is, is emerging that otherwise the Chinese will essentially eat their lunch, that the Chinese machine will be unstoppable, especially in the industries of the future, such as AI, 5G, electric vehicles, etc. On a more ideological plane, we're seeing this shift in the striking return of, of, of a or reemergence of a criticism of Milton Friedman, the famous economist from Milton Friedman's notion that the purpose of a corporation is simply to make money for its shareholders and nothing else. And we're seeing this in the, in the rise of talk of so-called impact finance and stakeholder capitalism as opposed to purely shareholder capitalism. And all of this has been strengthened by what has clearly been a very important, in fact, crucial role of the state in dealing with the entire COVID pandemic, and especially in dealing with, in financing the basic kind of research that is at the heart of the vaccines, with you know the so-called warp speed project that the Trump administration initiated, etc., where the state plays a critical role in bankrolling that research and guaranteeing to the companies a certain amount of financial flow so that they feel prepared and able to undertake the very expensive research that is necessary to develop these vaccines. In sum, the hollowing out of the state, which neoliberalism caused and championed, is now becoming a source of geopolitical weakness. And elites are starting to realize that to compete against China, the state will have to be strong, even at the expense of the so-called free market, which was never that free anyhow. American neoliberalism, in other words, could tolerate vast inequality and enormous political dysfunction at home for a very long time, but not under the pressure of a Chinese system, which by virtue of its sheer size, is and always would have been a quote-unquote peer threat, as the military likes to, likes to call it. And Europe, incidentally, could not play that role. Europe could not generate such fears because Europe is not politically united and is therefore only an economic, but not a political power. In addition to the fact, of course, that European nations, by and large, share, broadly speaking, the same kind of political system as the US, which is, of course, not the case uh, with China. So I think what we're seeing is more generally that geopolitical considerations are starting to trump, you'll excuse the pun, pure economic ones. I think future historians will say that the period from the late 70s, and in particular from the end of the Cold War, to around about 2015, was the era of neoliberalism, or 
to put it another way, the age of untrammeled global capitalism. That window is now closing. The state is reclaiming its importance, especially after the pandemic, which displayed uh, the state's inevitability and, and crucial function. Now, how should we think about this? As I said, it is essentially, in my view, a welcome development for a number of reasons. It will begin to address the dissatisfaction with the status quo that has been expressed in, in so-called populist movements, a term, by the way, populist that I don't think much of. I think it has lost any analytical force it, it once had. Uh, but nonetheless, it secondly will delegitimize the ideological narrative which sought to justify inequality as quote-unquote market optimal. In other words, which sought to uh, defend enormous and really indefensible levels of inequality on the grounds that it was on the margin better even for, for the poor. Thirdly, it will mobilize intellectual and material resources for the coming multi-decade confrontation with China. And it will be something that will play itself out over many decades. And lastly, and this is perhaps on a more regional level, it might even force the EU into a real choice as to its future, which ultimately is now and always was whether to centralize more or not, since the EU is a kind of mishmash in a, or in an in-between place between nothing at all, in other words, a loose collection of nation states and a more federal union. Neoliberalism was always in a sense a misnomer. There was never anything quote liberal about it, not even in terms of the old notion of market liberalism, in the sense of the liberty of the market, letting market actors play themselves out free from the, in, the strong hand or the strong intervention of the state. There was never anything terribly liberal about that whole constellation. It was always a rigged game, and it shall not be missed. When China began to reform under Deng Xiaoping in the late 70s, it seemed as though world spirit, to use the old Hegelian term, was converging on the Western capitalist model. It seemed as though that was the future. Forty years later, it is the West which is licking its wounds, especially after the COVID pandemic, and learning that in some ways the Chinese model has its advantages, as we've seen again with industrial policy and paradoxically and ironically with the very way in which they dealt with the pandemic. History, it turns out, did not end after the Cold War. It was only turning. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of David's Politics Show. I hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for more such episodes. Until next time, bye-bye.